0: Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Dammer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I am talking to Dr. Stephen Wilkes, who is a research fellow and editor of the Australian Dictionary of Biography and the Dictionary of the House of Representatives project. Wonderful to have you here, Stephen, in the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dijin. I'm very, very grateful for this opportunity. Yeah, well,
0: I'm very grateful. You're fresh off the plane from Canberra Mm -hmm. (laughs) into shivering cold Melbourne. We flirted with spring a few weeks ago and then we've descended back into winter. It's okay. I'm a next
1: Melbourne, and I'm okay with cool (laughs) weather. All right. And you live in
0: Canberra too, so you should be used to it. But anyway, today we're going to speak about Earl Page and you did a doctorate on Earl Page and a book. So you certainly are very, very well placed to talk all about Earl Page and it's fascinating that he is such an important Australian political figure and his contribution to Australian political history and the architecture and things that we take for granted these days is enormous, but I don't think people know very much about
1: him. No, he's tended to drop out of history. There are certain reasons for that, I believe. One is that he tends to be underrated as an ideas man. His ideas were legion and they drove him. And I can elaborate on those shortly. But there tend to be assumptions that he was really the worst of the country party and that he was just out there for a quid for rural Australia. Now, setting aside whether or not that's really a fair assessment of a country party, he was a lot more than that. But now people tend to say, ah, the country party is just out for a buck for rural Australia. He also tends to be tarred by two very, very nasty incidents in his career. One was his notorious attack of April 1939 on Robert Menzies in the Parliament. Page was caretaker Prime Minister. Menzies had just been chosen as the head of the United Australia Party and therefore was about to become Prime Minister. Page would pass the baton to him, there was the understanding. Page absolutely loathed Menzies and vice versa for reasons I can elaborate on and his attack in the Parliament, essentially saying, somewhat bolderising what he said, Menzies was a coward. He did not go for the First World War, not fit to be Prime Minister. There are other drivers here. The other incident which tars Earl Page's reputation is the 7th Division incident. Page, in his amazing, long, varied career, served for several months on some committees of Churchill's War Cabinet, based in London as Australian representative, paralleling Stanley Bruce, who was High Commissioner. Fortunately, they knew each other very well and were able to make it more or less work. The issue was whether the 7th Division returning from the Middle East should go on to Australia or wherever, or perhaps to Java, or should it be diverted to Burma, which Churchill and Roosevelt favoured. Burma seemed to be falling. There was concern about the supply routes into China. The Australian government wanted them back, or at least where they wanted them to be, to Java or Australia. There was some consideration still being given to that. And Page went along with Churchill. Now, he was supposed to be representing the Australian government, but Earl Page being Earl Page, everything was going to be ultimately his agenda. He gave Churchill the impression that once Canberra saw the full case from London for their going to Burma and not going to Australia, they all probably agree. So he was involved in Churchill's decision to turn, get the convoy ready to be turned around and headed north to Burma. That did not go down well in Canberra. He was horribly rebuked by Curtin and Evatt. Page himself described it as the worst experience of his life. And that's not been forgotten.
0: No, that is a very interesting anecdote. And, of course, the criticism of Menzies not serving in the First World War, it's a famous incident in Parliament, and it's something that haunts Page, obviously, and destroys really his leadership aspirations into the future, doesn't it? But it's something that haunts Menzies too, which is interesting.
1: Yes, it is. I noticed there was some evidence a year or two back that he was banned for some time from the Melbourne Club because not having gone to the First World War documentary evidence was found by another historian. Clearly it haunted him and I noticed also in Troy Bramston's recent biography of Menzies, apparently told one of his friends, the reason why I was so devoted to public duty was that I felt I should atone of not going to the war. Page himself did have a war record. He had been a surgeon for one year, 1916, 1917, Egypt, England, and at a casualty clearing station in France. He came back early from the war, back to his hometown of Grafton in northeastern New South Wales. That wasn't that unusual as a lot of the doctors were rotated in and out. If you could find someone to take your position off overseas, you're usually allowed back. And he certainly uh, pushed his pal Neville House, who's commanding the Australian medical forces. Can I go back now? So okay, he served for a year, that's that's not too bad. And there wasn't too much criticism when he got back of having only been a year. It was, as I said, not uncommon for doctors to move in and out of military service during the war. That said, his relationship with Menzies was, as we all know, awful. A number of reasons about it. They were very different people, rural, provincial city-based doctor, not really a farmer at the time, more of a small-town surgeon, totally different men. Legal background, city background, mixed city regional background for Menzies. Menzies had some baggage, I suspect, from the 1920s when he was in Victorian politics in the early 30s, the relationship between the urban-based conservatives and the country party was extremely poor in Victoria. In many respects, the country party was closer to Labor for many years.
0: And, in fact, Menzies resigns from the Victorian cabinet Mm. over an issue to do with basically propping up Mm. companies that the country party in Victoria favoured with government subsidies. His concerns about vested interests, general rural vested interests, goes back to quite early in Menzies' political career. And he did
1: have a history of uh, resigning on principle over certain big policy issues. Now, that also links into the notorious Page speech As we know, he resigned over national insurance issue from Joe Lyons' cabinet. Menzies said, I've made a commitment to my electors. Right, I'm out. If you're not going to do it, I can't. In good grace, consciousness, stay in this cabinet. Page was particularly enraged that he felt that Menzies had stressed Joe Lyons and contributed to his death by heart attack. He was a doctor and he said straight out to many people. Menzies did this. He killed my friend, effectively, for all practical purposes. He was quite open about that. And
0: Joe Lyons' wife, Enid Lyons, also believed this, I understand, yep. and blamed Menzies for yeah. Joe Lyons' death. And
1: they also irritated each other at a very fundamental personal level. They actually had travelled together overseas to Europe and Britain, so they had plenty of time to get to know to dislike each other. <laughs> uh, evidently, Menzies <laughs> was amused by, uh, according to Alan Martin, his foremost biographer, amused by Page's mannerisms, which were very distinct. <laughs> he had a rapid, forceful way of speaking, tended to giggle a bit. But he spoke perfectly fluently, but nonetheless, he was very forceful. Every conversation was conducted on his terms, including with people like Menzies, which is not a, a bold thing to do.
0: Would have and irked Menzies, I To say the least,
1: and yeah. had a habit of repeating a little phrase, you see, you see, you see, over and over. He was well known for that. There are no recordings of him speaking oh, in that manner. What a shame. There are formal recordings, and I must say his reputation is such that when people hear a formal record of him talking to camera, for example, people are often surprised that he's, he's perfectly straightforward, normal, fluent, articulate, clear. Because, again, the Menzies attack at other incidents tends to create an impression in some people's minds that you're going to have this raving, ranting, angry man. He's not. He was actually quite a forgiving bloke. He never totally made up with Menzies, he never fully apologised, but he did come around to saying, I was wrong to have said you're not suited to being Prime Minister, which is almost an apology, but not quite, and did twice again serve under Menzies in his ministries. But nonetheless, there was always this tension. And in Afternoon Light, Earl Page is one of the very few people who get a bagging in that book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Afternoon Light is, of course, one of Sir Robert Menzies' memoirs that he writes after his retirement. Stephen, wondered if we could start at the beginning mm-hmm. of Earl Page's life just to give. Our listeners a sense of his background, where he came from. So you talked about Grafton. So he yes. comes from northeast New South Wales, and he's very much a rural person, isn't he? Sort of
1: a small town person. Doesn't like a-
0: the Sydney octopus, is it? Absolutely, that right? <laughs> absolutely.
1: More of a small town person than from a farming background. He later did have major property. It's still in Page family hands outside Grafton, along the banks of the Clarence River. One of eleven children, not unusual in those days. Born in eighteen eighty I said. But the family was a really interesting one. They're a fabulous family, I must say, for pages. Not a wealthy family, but incredibly active in social good works. Strong Methodist influence, practical, earthly good. They were involved locally and heavily involved in education, in local cinemas, newspapers, even a a meat canning facility. Just about everything. And of those 11 children five of them went to Sydney University. I think it was all boys. I stand to be corrected on that. But nonetheless, five out of 11 from a not terribly wealthy family from out in the provinces to go to Sydney Uni in those days was pretty impressive. Page himself studied earnestly as a young kid. He identified the only way I can get to Sydney Uni is on a scholarship. He planned all this out very well, got the scholarship, entered Sydney Uni at the age of It's
0: amazing, isn't it? And
1: still topped his (laughs) class in medicine a few years later. Absolutely incredible. The other thing, though, is that he had this absolute and utter devotion to Grafton and the Clarence Valley. He always felt this is a model community. We were so happy there. We looked after each other. Despite floods or whatever, we were always watching after everyone else. Wonderful place. It's a model for the country. But big cities... And he was exposed to Sydney as a young medical student often in local hospitals. Imagine something you would have seen in some of the inner city, in the Sydney hospitals of that time. Quite different he from felt Grafton, no doubt. And he said yes. as much. They brought out the worst in people.
0: Interesting, yeah. So he starts off his career as a doctor Mm -hmm. and becomes quite a notable surgeon, doesn't he? He was a very,
1: very good surgeon. He had all kinds of offers to stay in Sydney where he could easily have had a career path as a uh, classical Macquarie Street specialist, I'm sure. I think he was an abdominal surgeon, but he could pretty turn his hand to just about end have a crack at it. There are apparently quite well-established accounts of him as a parliamentarian in the 20s, on one or two occasions, undertaking emergency operations in the old parliament building in Canberra, and so on, and fellow members. Oh, my um, goodness. Oh, yes. There are, several, They're multi-talented. Several instances. But he chose to go back to Grafton, which does speak very, very well of him. He was aware of rural poverty in the contrast to the big cities. And as a young surgeon, he was exposed to two things. Not just, on one hand, as I've said, rural poverty and the relative lack of services compared to the big cities. But he also was fascinated by technology. Now, this was a time when the medical profession was changing. All kinds of things were becoming possible, which weren't possible a decade earlier. X-rays, for example, were coming in. And he was deeply impressed by electricity. There was a great worldwide fascination with the power and potential of electricity at the time. United States, Canada, New Zealand, Europe, everywhere, Japan, and so on. He thought this was the key to so much of improving living standards. And there was a particular fascination with hydroelectricity, which seemed, like magic pouring water to create electricity, sort of. And you thought, hmm, the Clarence River, hmm, what can we do with this? I think we can use it for hydroelectricity. He set up his own little private hospital, Clarence House. It's still there in South Grafton, the south side of the Clarence River from the main part of Grafton, private facility, and installed all kinds of X-ray machines, set up his own little ambulance service and so on, but wrote many times. Often he'd be tearing off into the countryside trying to get someone before they died and often was too late. He never forgot that. Yeah. He didn't romanticise about rural life.
0: But this interest in hydroelectricity becomes quite a I mean it's a long standing passion and he's driving this throughout mm-hmm. his career, isn't he? And, and he eventually does get his he gets some his dam in the Clarence River, doesn't he? And
1: sort of. He had one real success on the hydroelectricity, or one major one. That was a dam in the Boyder River.
0: Mimboida, that's part of right. the
1: uh, wider Clarence network. Yeah. And so on. in the early twenties, he worked through local government to get that set up. Still there, I understand, still going, I believe. But he wanted to Damn the Clarence at a place called the Gorge, well inland from its outlet. He was going to do that, but he wanted also to establish... We're getting now really into his broad vision for Australia. This guy had this extraordinary synthesis of ideas for the Australian nation. They're basically a plan for the nation, an entire alternative to well-established concepts of Deaconite settlement, for example, or Hancock's idea, Keith Hancock's, the historian's idea, of seeing Australians tending to see the state as a major social utility, providing goodies, services, whatever. He wanted to, first of all, decentralise the population, get people out of these wicked big cities into small towns. He thought up to about 100,000 was great. And he loved Canberra because he interpreted it as an exercise in decentralisation. They would pull together, have happy, productive communities. They would know how to harness their own resources. People would work together and so on. Segwaying with that was hydroelectricity, because it's sort of regional in basis. It's based around the river system and so on, usually. And the Clarence, of course, was this wonderful example, literally flowing past his front yard when he moved in Grafton. He felt also he wanted to completely restructure the Australian Federation to get rid of his states. He didn't like state governments at all. You'd have, on the one hand, a strong national government setting broad policies and education, infrastructure, whatever, transport and so on, but then an array across the country of regional entities, much smaller than states.
0: So sort of local governments. Sort sort of like large
1: local governments.
0: Because he says in 1917, he speaks of the bastard constitution which has left the national government continually at the mercy of the states. So he's, you know, railing against the Federation, hmm. isn't he? He was one
1: of him. the earliest significant critics of the Australian Constitution. Yeah. He and the Labor Party. The Labor Party disliked the Australian Constitution for various other reasons. They felt it had too many balances, checks, upper houses and so on, states, which constricted their powers. They wanted a really strong national government. Page Thor also wanted a national government, but he wanted to work in harness of these regional entities. He rather unromantically called them, I think it was regional units or something. Oh,
0: that is very so. It doesn't sound
1: terribly exciting. I mean, He was never terribly clear on how many there would be. It wasn't a great number, a dozen to 20 maybe, varied a bit from time to time. They had their own little legislatures, But they wouldn't be setting national policy. That would come from a federal government. He was very big on various ideas. He was tossed around for some sort of central planning agencies. And indeed, one of the reasons why he clashed with Menzies in '39, he felt Menzies had failed to support him. Audacious, even by Page standards, initiative to establish such machinery.
0: Which, of course, Menzies would have been opposed to because it sounded very much like socialism, let's be honest. Well, Page was an
1: ardent... (laughs) anti-socialist, but there were so many contradictions which he had some difficulty explaining away and historians have to this day have been puzzled. Strong national governments, I mentioned, but also these regional entities. And he said, well, one's policy, the other's implementation. That's going to be okay. Was Al Page the
0: original agrarian socialist then?
1: He would hate to be called an agrarian socialist, but (laughs) the country party is also terribly, terribly difficult to classify on the conventional left-right. Yes. Spectrum, ardently anti-socialist, but at the same time, not averse to government intervention and support here and there. Page tended to see himself not as a conservative, but he thought of himself as an innovator. And he often pictured himself drawing on his memories as a young surgeon in this rather crusty old profession, battling rather more experienced, but also very conservative surgeons who did not take to new ways so readily. He pictured himself as the night of innovation, of change, the modern way, the new way. I showed them. He would say, repeat anecdotes about, haha, I showed them. I showed them the way about how to do this operation or that operation. They realized I was right in the end. <laughs> and so, on. And so he, he would probably say, I'm an innovator. I'm not a conservative. I'm a man of the future.
0: Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Connected to these regional units and there being a central planning commission run by the federal government, he loves his hometown of mm-hmm. Grafton and doesn't like evil Sin City Sydney and he sees sort of Sydney as an octopus mm-hmm. and its influences moving up towards yep. its precious regional paradise of Grafton. He tries to push this new state movement, doesn't he, oh, where yes. we're sort of... Regional New South Wales would be a separate state from Sydney? Well, or... <laughs>
1: new states, where do I start? It sounds outlandish today, doesn't it, it? It
0: does a bit, let's be honest. Especially for someone who ends up being a very serious political figure. Yeah. Yeah. But look, it was
1: such a serious deal back in the early days of the Australian Federation. The Australian Constitution has, has sections on how to create new states. And it was widely expected by the founding fathers of the Australian Constitution. that there would be new states. Now, Page latched on to this with an absolute vengeance. Grafton on the Clarence Valley on the one hand and the Armidale-Tamworth-New England area were both absolute bastions of new state thinking. Australia's unusual in having these new state movements, partly because our states, particularly New South Wales and Queensland, were large they had sizable populations in diverse, outside the main cities, particularly in uh, Queensland, which felt that they could go it alone. Brisbane, Sydney were distant felt they were hogging all the resources, which there was some argument about that I won't get into, perhaps. So the size and diversity of these two states in particular spawned these movements, particularly strong in northern New South Wales, New England and the Clarence Valley, felt we're different, we're better. We can do it ourselves without our resources being sucked away from Sydney. Page's family, his father and grandfather, had been active in New State movements, so it was a family tradition, and the New State movement gave him an enormous boost as a young man into politics. He had a ready-made cause which people understood and recognised and a network of contacts stretching right into the regional media. A lot of the New State agitators were newspaper editors in Tamworth, Inverell, Armadale and Grafton. And Page himself was a new small-time newspaper proprietor in Grafton. But there was a huge difference. The vast majority of these new state movements were just focused on one area, their own particular backyard, understandably enough. Page saw creating a new state in North New South Wales as a step towards this grand division of dividing up the whole nation. And that's where he was very different from the rest of them. One of his problems was, and all these great issues he was tackling with, He could get allies for particular issues, for hydropower here and there, for new states here and there and whatever. But the synthesis, the broader picture he had, very few people bought that as a package.
0: Right. I see. But despite that, despite him finding it difficult to sell the whole package of Mm. his ideas, he was able to create this political entity, this new party, the country Mm, party in 1920. And he sort of seems to quickly progress yeah. through getting into politics, getting elected to his seat. He was elected to the seat of Cowper. Yep. Then, yeah. It's a funny this thing. party out of this, you know, they do quite well, don't they? He was
1: incredibly fortunate, I guess. I mean, look, he's one of the great and I mean this nicely, one of the great eccentrics of Australian politics, and the vast majority of his somewhat borderline figures, often very worthy, important people, Barry Jones, John Hyde, for example, very constructive people, they usually don't land and stay at the centre of power. Page was briefly Prime Minister. He was a treasurer for years. Yes, he was our 11th, PM for years. Incredible. And this, this
0: is definitely a trivial pursuit question. Yep. He's our 11th Prime Minister. He was Prime Minister for just 20 days from the 7th of April nineteen thirty which for been just after joe lyons died until menzies takes over as leader of the united australia party on the 26th of april 1939 mm-hmm. so for 20 very short days not even three weeks he was and Prime Minister another good to...
1: such question is who are the three longest serving australian federal parliamentarians page weighs in at number three
0: is that right?
1: Number one is pretty well known as Billy Hughes. Number two does surprise a number of people. It was Philip Ruddock.
0: Oh, I was going to <laughs> say he should be up there. He was father of the house for a very long time. <laughs> but there, yes, no, I mean, this is fast forwarding to the end of Paige's life, but there's a curious story when Paige finally loses his seat, yes. isn't there?
1: Yes, he held the seat from 1919 up to 1961. And in the big swing in 1961, he lost it. Now, he was dying of cancer. And he apparently, opinions vary on this. Most people feel that he did not know he had lost the seat when he died. One or two family members have suggested he probably had guessed. The person who won the seat, and I'm sorry for the Labor Party, I'm sorry, I can't recall his name. He was a onceer, as it turned out. New knew Page very well. One verse story which may or not be verifiable is that he was delivered as a child. He was born to Page as a doctor, possibly, possibly not. I, I wouldn't bet the house on that. So he held that seat for so long. He had a tremendous, solid power base. The Page's were an extremely well-known popular family in that area. That's one of, part of his explanation why this unusual man rose so quickly. But the real thing was that he rode the rise of a country party. Right around the world, particularly in countries of new settlement, as they're sometimes somewhat unfashionably now called, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United States, and also Scandinavia, these rural protest parties various reasons emerged. Most of them died out or amalgamated with more mainstream conservative parties. The Australian Country Party was different. Page was one of its founders, not the only one. He wasn't the first leader of the Country Party. a Tasmanian called William McWilliams, it was the first one as a stopgap interim. Well, you can do the job. You've been a parliamentarian before. A of rural independents endorsed by various farmers' associations after the 1919 election caucus together, 11 of them, said, well, we'll call ourselves the Country Party. What about that as a name? and went from there and eventually evolved into a conventional political party. But the big thing for Pace, not only did you have this new party rising and starting to move towards establishing the balance of power, but they were very open. They didn't really know what their views or opinions were. And they were so flexible and so accommodating, so broad. A guy with a pretty distinctive, I must say, individual set of ideas was able to survive and function in that early on and become its second and first long-term leader. In a more established Labour Party or Nationalist Party, he had at the time, he really would have been told, "Earl, just read the platform, sit down, and shut up." <laughs> and he became leader from twenty-one to thirty-nine.
0: Well, I guess the fact that it was a new party and they weren't really certain about what they stood for was to his benefit.
1: Absolutely, yeah. But all that, but that said. Over time he drifted away from the mainstream. One of the ironies of the country party it was so successful in the twenties, thirties, later on, in getting resources and getting recognition in the political system for rural and regional Australia. It tended to conventionalize itself and became part of the mainstream itself. When they first came into Australian political history in the early nineteen twenties, the country party thought they weren't really politicians. We're different, we're better, we're great, we're non political. So
0: and this idea is still floating <laughs> yes, around, I think,
1: does. in the nationals. It's I've heard one or two to national party figures say you'll never be prime minister in this outfit, but we don't care. We're above <laughs> that. <laughs> that meant as Country Party became more mainstream, more established, and conventional, there was less and less room for Page's more way-out there ideas. He became a bit of an outsider, even as leader. like Jack McCuren said when he came into politics, federal politics, I think it was thirty-four. Page already then was very distant from the rest of a Country Party and was not popular. And he still survived for several more years. In those days, you are knocking off leaders was a pretty difficult and rare thing.
0: Yeah, uh, that's absolutely fascinating. I wondered, Stephen, if we could talk about the founding of the coalition.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. In
0: 1923, because this is also a very key part of Page's story. Absolutely. I mean, the coalition, the the alliance between the. Country party as it then was, and the nationalists as the a precursor to the Liberal Party is 99 years old, yep. isn't it? I mean, it's ebbed and flowed, obviously. It's over a wonder, it's an astonishing thing. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Look. In Earl Page's uh, personal papers, most of which are in the National Library in Canberra, sitting there innocently in one of the boxes is the handwritten first coalition agreement in Stanley Bruce's rather spindly hard-to-read handwriting (laughs) reproduced in a history of the party by one of the party's historians, a guy called Ulrich Ellis, great admirer of Page. It really should be in a museum somewhere. It sets out the negotiations. Essentially, what happened, you had the rise of these rural parties at the 1922 election. The country party finally seized the balance of power, didn't like Billy Hughes. He was a former socialist Labour Party fellow who switched sides over the conscription issue. They felt they disliked him personally, felt he was blowing a lot of money on all kinds of socialistic projects, as they would have put it. Got rid of him, brought in the stately patrician, Stanley Bruce, as his replacement.
0: Paige and Stanley Bruce get on very well They don't get on they, pretty
1: but, well. Yeah. Long story there, just to go back a step, though, there was a huge debate in the early country party, which went on for years, particularly at state level, should we stay outside formal politics or for politics or form a coalition? An early coalition actually popped up in Western Australia. There were some state country parties floating around early on in, uh, I think, 1917. So Page wasn't the absolute pioneer of a coalition between rural and urban conservatives, but he fought hard railroaded the rest of his federal party and said, we're going to go for this coalition. I'll tell you all about it later. <laughs> in almost as many words, he apologised afterwards for the, the favourite circumstances were such that I really couldn't consult her as fully as I would have liked with you. Went and saw Bruce here in Melbourne, his flat in South Yarra, and they just nutted it out pretty readily. Once Billy Hughes had said, all right, I'll go, they were, it was easy for Bruce and Page to get that handwritten agreement out of four mentioned handwritten document in the Page papers in the National Library. Now, that said, they're a really odd couple. (laughs) The patrician, urban, very polite, very formal Stanley Bruce, very calm sort of fellow by all accounts, and the rather energetic, almost erratic Earl Page with his rural background. They complemented each other. That's one good thing. Their economic views were sufficiently compatible for them to work. They were both keen on the development of Australia, or developmentalism, as it's sometimes called. It's a little word I've seized upon. Bruce was more conventional, foreign investment, migration, a very rational, cautious approach to tariffs and so on, a more mm. and a great efficient man on efficiency. He wanted efficiency in government. He was channeling to some extent a lot of his business precepts. He was one of the few business people to be Australian Prime Minister. Turnbull was one of the few others, almost the only other. Whereas Page was in, okay, he was into development, he was into efficiency, but again you had all these add ons of the planning and the hydroelectricity, the new stage of regionalism, which Bruce only somewhat bought. Now, it's pretty clear, but whilst they worked together fairly well, Page thought more of Bruce than Bruce thought of Page. In some of his private comments, he said, yes, we worked okay. I had to tell him to shut up sometimes and (laughs) cool down and what on earth are you raving about? But he sometimes came up with brilliant ideas. He was not happy with the attack on Menzies at all. Bruce was more personally in simpatico with Robert Menzies, not surprisingly. And rather bizarrely, in 1939, after Joe Lyons' death, Page attempted to induce Bruce to come back and again become Prime Minister, who was living in London at the time, which Bruce dilly dallied over and effectively said no or imposed impossible conditions, which were an effective no. So, yeah, they got on, they complimented each other, but Bruce never went full page, to put right. it that way. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> well, and appropriately so, given they were from different political parties. But initial coalition agreement, it's an incredible coup for the country party. Bloody I mean, good
1: deal, yeah. They got
0: five ministerial portfolios out of 11. Yes. So almost, basically, sort of almost 50%, was Page to be called Deputy Prime Minister and the new government would be called the Bruce Page. That's right. The Ministry. name was terribly
1: important. Bruce was pretty, I wouldn't say blasé, but I think he just made a judgment that he really could still run the show. And there were claims many years later, usually by people who were not directly involved in these events. This government, it looks like it was really being run by Page. I don't think that was the case. Bruce was a fellow who said, look, I really don't care who gets the personal credit for these initiatives in my government. If Page wants to take it, all right. If well, he did occasionally, want to privately complain. But a seasoned observer like George Pierce said, no, 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 Bruce was clearly always ultimately in charge. And there's quite a lot of evidence in the Page papers. as letters and Bruce saying, Earl, I'm going overseas. This is I want you to definitely to get covered and sort it out whilst I'm away. I'll be coming back and I'll be checking. Rather more politely worded, but clearly the, the sort of uh, correspondence of a man who is ultimately in charge. Okay, called to boost Page Government. Bruce was number one. Page number two, and technically he did not adopt the title of Deputy Prime Minister, but that's effectively what he was. And, of course, Treasurer. And he greatly expanded on the role of Treasurer. It was his platform to stick his nose into pretty well anything.
0: And as treasurer, of course, he was sort of slightly able to get his own back with the states, wasn't he, through the creation of Tide Grants. Yes,
1: absolutely. Tide Grants. Well, isn't that it So he was a, finally
0: controlling those states. Isn't that
1: a little uh, can of worms? <laughs> Tide Grants. Oh, this is quite a story.
0: We know Tide Grants now. I mean, obviously, they're a key part of the Commonwealth sort of funding activities. But this was the beginning of the Tide Grants. It was. He wasn't quite the very first
1: one. Apparently, Billy Hughes and possibly others did apply a very few Tide Grants. But it was Page who systematised them for the purposes of building rural roads. And as a doctor, he was very aware of the importance of rural roads to get out the patients quickly. So he and Bruce went along, and after some high court challenges, which they won, produced these schemes.
0: And Menzies apparently was appeared as counsel for right. Victoria. That's in right. That's He was part of the Victorian
1: legal the, team, saying, "No way, guys." Yeah,
0: to the use of Section yeah. 96 of the Constitution. And it wasn't really the
1: intention of Section 96. What it appears that when they referred to the Commonwealth being able to provide financial assistance to states on whatever terms it sees fit, that's not, not quite the exact wording, but close enough. They probably were referring to repayment conditions and so on, but it was interpreted by the High Court very literally to be, well, in usage, you can specify as well. And of course, we still have them now. Now, at the top, for many, many years, they were used rather sparingly for very targeted purposes, roads, higher education, famously. But under Whitlam and other subsequent governments, they started being applied to pretty well bloody anything the Commonwealth wanted to do. So hence you have Commonwealth funding of car parks. Yes. In Australia's cities and so on.
0: CCTV. <laughs> yes. Netball clubs. Yes. It's amazing what the Commonwealth can get its hands into. But do you think Earl Page would be happy with that?
1: No, he wouldn't. Oh, okay. I don't think so. He would have felt they shouldn't be going through states at all, but you've got to have his regional entities. He would say, look, the outcome in the end maybe is okay, but it's not really what I want. He would have had a much uh, more energetic role, much more uh, constructive role for his regional entities. He would say probably the shift that may have gone a little bit too far to the national government now.
0: What about his views on central banking? As Treasurer, he took quite an interest in this as an issue and really wanted the Commonwealth Bank, which was at that stage, the central bank, to be a much stronger central bank, didn't he?
1: Yes, he greatly increased its role. He didn't found it. It was founded under one of Fisher's labour governments, and there's a little controversy there as to who was the main progenitor, which I will not get into. (laughs) But he was very much in favour of functioning as a central bank. He greatly strengthens its powers, but he was never able to get the full gamut of powers, various deposits and so on, which the commercial banks are required to keep a a true central bank. It was only actually under, uh, many years later, under Chifley and Menzies, you got full central bank emerging. But as a treasurer, though, apart from that, he was generally pretty straightforward, just simply get the budget done, get it done. Keynesian ideas are well and truly in the future. It was more that he used his position as treasurer, and therefore, in those days, of course, uh, treasury ran the budget, whereas nowadays that's all for the finance ministry. To really have a bit of a say in just about anything,
0: he obviously relished this role as treasurer and the ability to drive his own particular agendas through. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing he was involved with the, I guess, the precursor was it to the CSIRO.
1: That's right. He was a the man Council of science, for yes.
0: Scientific and industrial yep. research.
1: Yes, he was one of the progenitors of that. He had quite a significant role in the CSIR, as it then yes. was, which itself was an expansion of something Billy Hughes had set up some years earlier, and it eventually morphed into the CSIRO. He was one of the very few Australian political figures, senior political figures, particularly at that time, who had a science background. He saw himself as a man of science. And both he and Bruce were very keen on this CSIR. And indeed, if you look at some of Bruce's speeches of the time, introducing legislation for this entity, they sound so much like the speeches of today on innovation is so important. We are underperforming in this. We have great potential. Exactly the same.
0: It's funny you say that, Stephen. When you were talking about Page seeing himself as an innovator, I was thinking of Malcolm Turnbull being very, very enthused by innovation in his term as Prime Minister that was very much the future of Australia through innovation and diversifying the economy by moving out of the traditional agriculture, mining resources into innovative industries.
1: He was industries. a bit of a guy for picking winners here and there. He yeah. never used that term, of course. But he was very, very confident that the federal government, or his national government, it wouldn't have been a, quite a true federal government in some respects, was capable of initiating actions which would result in a so-called reproductive process of growth and so on. He tended to believe in legislative palliatives. And that's really one of his great weaknesses. I'll just set up your hydroelectric station here. And that will be so profitable, the private sector will invest in it, ho-ho, and it'll lead to other ones and they'll start growing across the nation despite obvious problems of Australian geography, particularly on the mainland. He also, the country party was extremely hostile to tariff protection and manufacturing. as was one of their great causes. Paige shared that, but he was okay with a limited range of scientifically assessed tariffs. It was a term that's sometimes used by him and Bruce, which would nurture infant industries based on Australian resources where we're likely to be efficient. So he was a little bit inclined to innovation, therefore picking winners thing, which is, I must say, I think one of the great failures of Australian history.
0: He had an interesting set of views on tariffs, didn't he, Stephen? So he was initially quite opposed to them because they were being put on manufactured items coming into Australia that farmers needed and, of course, that drove up the prices of these pieces of farm equipment for the regional communities. But he came around to tariffs, didn't he, and then saw them and marketing schemes and the like and saw these actually as very useful tools for developing Australia's agricultural industry.
1: Yes, he tended to come around to them, but in a qualified Pagean manner. So as I was saying, he was okay with tariffs, provided they were carefully thought out and applied to certain industries. And that created quite a bit of of tension with a lot of his country party colleagues. It was one of the great crusades of the early country parties. No tariffs, no tariffs. They are exploiting the farmers. Their agricultural machinery is uh, costly because we're just trying to protect hopeless little industries in the big cities. But he and Bruce were okay with it. They were always looking at planning agencies. And Bruce shared some of his interest in a rather light form of indicative planning, which would nurture selected industries. Page felt he'd do it in a particular way. He was not absolutely hot to trot on the so-called orderly marketing programs, a wide array of complex programs in the 20s and later to support rural production and so on. They took all kinds of different forms and they were not particular and unique to the country party either. He was okay with them, but he didn't really see them as central to his world view. He interpreted some of these schemes as being a good way of balancing out the economy by improving rural demand for urban products and creating some sort of economic perpetual motion machine. He gave a couple of speeches along those lines. But both he and Bruce tried to put these sorts of programs on a non-political level. They established an outfit called a Development and Migration Commission, an extraordinary body in the 1920s, headed by mostly business figures, a guy called Herbert Jepp in particular from the refining industry, quite a big figure. And this DMC, as it was known, was established by them to try and elevate development policy beyond mere politics. It would assess a lot of projects, particularly those linked into programs for British migration, bringing migrants out as basically as as land and urban workers. And it also had an extraordinary wide brief to stick to notes and just about anything. They did an assessment, for example, of the Tasmanian economy. So what are we going to do with Tasmania? (laughs) And all kinds of things. It was abolished by Scullin's government, which is anti-migration. It said, what's the point of having this commission? We're We're not having migration in these economic circumstances of the early 30s. Bruce wrote privately to Page later, my greatest regret after losing the prime ministership is the abolition of what he called my Development and Migration Commission. They were absolutely mortified. And in the end, in the late 30s, harking back to his attempt to revive planning, it was the DMC, which was Page's guiding spirit, when in 39 he tried to establish a more powerful machinery and was one of his gripes of Robert Menzies.
0: Ah, right. And this was when he was Commerce Minister, was it? That's right. Under he was Commerce Joe Minister Lyons. and
1: briefly yes. Health Minister under yes. Joe Lyons. Yeah. This gets really interesting, i got to say. When I first started researching him by incredible good luck, the first folder I popped open from his papers was the story of the National Council, his planning entity. Basically, as Lyons began to physically fail and as he started to lose heart and wanted to get out of politics but he was still stuck with being pm page became more and more assertive now he absolutely adored joe lyons as a person hence his anger when he developed the idea that Menzies stressing page it contributed to his death but page basically seized the controls of the federal government and he was always on the lookout for a cause which could justify one of his particular pet projects he thought haha war is looming we need a big body which will gear up the Australian civil economy for a war effort. But he actually wrote privately to Bruce and said, threat of war gives me a basis of putting these ideas of mine on a basis the public will empathise with. So there was a little bit of unhand going on there. And he basically railroaded poor old Joe Lyons, who was sick back at his home in Tasmania, and said, I'm calling a premiers conference, or adding on uh, to an uh, established premier conference, a secondary meeting of all the premiers, and I'm going to establish this planning entity. Most of the premiers, when they got to the chamber of the House of Reps, where it was held in uh, the first meeting in November '38, with Menzies very reluctantly helping to preside over affairs there, just basically said, what? What are you talking about? Page wanted to set up a national council, as he called it, mostly headed by business leaders. He was actually very sympathetic over a lot of senior business figures. He tended to seek their support and approval, which is not always reciprocated. They would be running this thing. He was very fuzzy as to how it was going to work, some vague ideas about targeted tariffs, infrastructure, freight subsidies, and whatever. Most of the premiers just sat there slack-mouthed and just said, oh, God. <laughs> one exception, though, Bertram Stevens from New South Wales, a really unusual man. Yes. The successor from another party to Jack Lang. He was yeah. the guy who appointed caretaker premier when Lang was sacked and later became premier in a more substantive manner. He was quite interested, and he was actually criticised by many of his colleagues in the old UAP for being too close to country party interests, one reason why he lost the premiership eventually. He said, Yeah, great idea. Hot stuff. He himself was interested in planning and hydroelectricity and toured hydroelectricity projects in Europe. Second meeting, okay, so it basically fell over. Page did a bit of rejigging, gave the state a slightly bigger role in this aforesaid National Council. It was Would actually
0: begrudgingly. A, of begrudgingly. Of yeah, <laughs> it was
1: actually nominally established, but never did a thing. In March 39, it was created. Had one brief meeting and then just flopped over and died. Right. <laughs>
0: And obviously, very soon after that, then Menzies becomes Prime Minister, and no doubt the idea is completely and utterly kiboshed. Now, Stephen, let's fast forward to the election of Menzies in 1949, Mm -hmm. so Menzies becomes Prime Minister the second time. So Menzies appoints Page as his health minister, Mm -hmm. and he's health minister for quite some years. It's until 56. 56, so for seven years, or almost seven years, so a long-standing health minister, and he's known as the father of health insurance in Australia. Mm-hmm. So his contribution to health policy in Australia, free medicines, there's a number of you can thank Earl Page for medical services to the poor and increasing Commonwealth grants to hospitals. Those things are
1: due to Earl Page.
0: The fact that Menzies appoints someone who he really loathes, does that indicate they had a reconciliation at all? No, I
1: would call think? it a reconciliation. I was thinking it was more a begrudging acceptance. Well, you exist. I'm going to have to do something with you. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And so on. He actually brought him back into his cabinet in 1940, around about the time he almost lost the 1940 election. As Minister for Commerce, and there was various friendly comments being made by Page. I, you really, I realise now you, you are a great leader, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At one stage, he even offered uh, Menzies some rather gratuitous medical advice uh, about <laughs> how to handle stress and so oh, right. on. So I'm not sure not lose weight. <laughs> I'm sure Robert uh, Menzies uh, was absolutely delighted by.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm sure he really appreciated
1: it. Just before um, Page chuffed off to London, for what I mentioned earlier about going off one of Churchill's War Cabinet committees, or a couple of more than one of them. 49, what happened was that the Chifley government basically tried to set up a national health service modelled on Clement Attlee's national health service in Britain. So it was almost a nationalisation of the medical profession. They were vigorously opposed over this. It was a complicated matter, but basically they're having real trouble getting it up, getting it through Parliament, getting the legislation and so on. And it still wasn't up and running come the 1949 election. I think it was recognised by Menzies that Page had the skills and credibility with the medical profession. He also had a track record himself as a young doctor being involved in some of the battles earlier in the century between the medical profession and friendly societies, which are very big in their day with salary doctors they were using and all kinds of things. It's a very complex debate, but he had been involved in that. So he was trusted by the mainstream medical profession. He brilliantly, highly successfully negotiated a settlement with the medical profession basically to set up what was a very distant forerunner of Medicare, essentially recognising and enshrining private medical insurance subsidised by the Commonwealth through subsidisation of claims being made for treatment, but with add-ons of means-tested, free medical services and some certain selected free pharmaceuticals, Commonwealth funding of hospitals and so on.
0: So Stephen, and I may be putting words into your mouth here, we can thank Earl Page for avoiding the NHS in Australia. Because I mean, the NHS, you read about it in British press is not in a good way and doesn't deliver the health outcomes that we expect here in Australia. I mean, there's many good things about the NHS, but it, it has this very weird place in British political life and they no government seems to want to touch it, yet that means that it's completely unreformed mm-hmm. and unwieldy. Yep. Whereas we have, by international standards, a relatively well-run and well-functioning healthcare system Yeah, with the mix of private and public health. He's
1: one of the figures that we can thank. He certainly opposed it vigorously at the time, but uh, there were various legal challenges and pushback from the medical profession itself. So he was a very important element in that, but not by any means the only one or even the major one. He negotiated what really was a compromise, but he felt very strongly it shouldn't be a nationalised industry in any way or be seen as such. He also had concerns about the social and cultural effects of providing too much welfare, as he put it, and so on. He felt it would make people dependent and encourage what we now I think call a dependency culture. So he was very conscious of that. Now, that said, there were criticisms of his plan as it was being hatched. And it took several years in negotiations and was put into place bit by bit that it was going not to be very financially viable. And there were criticisms from, guess who, Treasury. In Canberra, the dreaded Treasury Department, now our finance, we would say the finance department, where Treasury still exists as a policy advising entity. There was something in that. There were a lot of cost overruns. But by that time, when they started to become very apparent, he had left the portfolio retired to the backbench and dedicated himself to the cause of damning the Clarence at last. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> well, on that happy note, <laughs> I think we should finish this discussion. It's absolutely imperative, I think, that people know more about Earl Page. He did many really important things that have a lasting legacy to this day. And I really thank you for coming on. Great. Thank light. you.
1: It's been marvellous. Really, he was Australia's foremost and most interesting advocate of what I call, again, the term I touched on earlier, developmentalism. Basically, this belief you could engineer Australia to realise its potential. It's a great story still to be fully researched, I think.
0: Well, you've got, I'm sure, another book in you then, Stephen, or maybe, maybe multiple <laughs> volumes. So thank you very much. Right. Thank you. The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.